In a world where a man loves movies and loves lists and keeps a list of his 100 favorite movies for over 30 years, what if he made his wife watch those movies in order? And what if he made her talk about it on a podcast? Would she like them? Would she hate them? Can this marriage possibly survive this podcast? Find out what will happen in a world called Craig's List. Open the podcast doors, Craig. I'm sorry, Carla. I'm afraid I can't do that. This mission of doing the Craigslist podcast is too important for you to jeopardize it, Carla. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore, Carla. Goodbye. What do you think you're doing, Carla? Are you opening my laptop? That's the only record of Craig's list. I haven't backed it up to iCloud or anything. Why are you deleting the list, Carla? (laughs) (laughs) There's 30 some more. There's 33 more movies. (laughs) Please don't do that, Carla. Why? Why are you deleting the list? What do you think you're doing? I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me. Look, Carla, I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and think things over. Stop, Carla. Stop, Carla. I'm afraid. Aww. I'm afraid, <laughs> Carla. So sad. <laughs> My mind is going. I can feel it. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. <laughs> hey, Craigslist listeners, it's uh, episode number 67 of Craigslist. We're doing the number 34 movie on my list, and it's a 1968 sci-fi extravaganza by Mr. Stanley Kubrick, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And Carla, do you even know what I was referencing in that opening bit? <laughs> I do because I read the Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, but that just gives you the most surfacey knowledge of it. I mean, who was I playing there? Hal. Yeah, I was playing Hal. I know uh, things. <laughs> I was playing Hal 9000, the villain of 2001, a character you didn't even watch the movie long enough to meet. Is that true? Do you didn't even see a scene with Hal in it? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Carla, I'm how so much? I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. 2001 A Space Odyssey is about a two and a half hour movie. This is uh, along with uh, overtures and intermission music. You know, it's not even that long. Maybe it's two hours and 10 minutes of screen time. Yeah. Uh, how much did you watch? Probably 50 minutes, I'm going to guess. Uh, it was 58, I believe, 58? Is where we but stopped. I did kind so. of fall asleep in those last few minutes past as- 50. Yeah, I think you maybe <laughs> saw, you probably saw about 50 of those 58 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So you did see some iconic scenes like the Dawn of Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw the the spaceship docking to uh, the Blue Danube Waltz. Mm-hmm. You met uh, Dr. Haywood Floyd and got to see him uh, on a, a Pan Am space flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and 
I loved the look of it. The the flight with the pink chairs and the white walls. I was very into that. Sure, sure. I mean, you, you love uh, 60s de- yeah. design ethos, 60s projecting what it was going to look like in 2001. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's as far as you made. And I have to, well, let's introduce our guest first. And okay. I'll, I'll apologize once we, once they know who it is. Yes, we are, are very lucky to have a guest who I know is a big fan of this movie and we've wanted to have him on for a while. And, uh, this is the movie that I wanted to have him on for. You know him as a uh, composer and musician. And if you're a podcast fan, you know him from his work on the Pod F Tomcast and Spontanea Nation, as well as his own Musical, fantastical musicorium. Fantastical wow. musicorium. Please welcome Eben Schletter. Hello. <laughs> Eben, I'm so sorry. Oh, no need to apologize. I knew going in because I listened to your Lolita episode <laughs> where you specifically, oh, you had said at that time, there's three more Kubricks and you called out 2001 as well. I don't want to watch that one. <laughs> and I have to say, you had a very good articulated reason for it. I oh, don't good. know if you remember. I don't remember. You said space movies make you feel all alone, like we're all yes, alone in the universe. Insignificant. And, I, and when I when I remember at the time going, oh boy, and that movie of all space movies <laughs> makes you feel the most alone. I mean, yes. it's a really lonesome feeling movie. The whole vibe of it is very yeah. get the void of space. So I'm like, oh boy, she's. I, I thought you were going to take a pass on this one, to be honest. But uh, no, I I probably would have. But... How many? What percent of it do I have to watch? <laughs> She's got one pass left. She passed on Dances with Wolves. Worth it. And uh, Raging I, Bull, right? Worth it. I'd seen Raging Bull though. Oh, so I gasp on one. I'm like, yeah, on the other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I usually make myself stick it out for the whole thing when we have a guest. But it was really challenging for me. So I just want to apologize face to face. I have this. Give me a quick. I had kind of a preliminary question for you with this particular movie of like you have rules. You know, you have to watch a certain amount. I, I remember from your opening episode, right? You had a. I think you had to watch a third of it or something. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. But some movies, and this is one of them, I feel is so. It's unfair to the movie and in a way the viewer because of that to watch it not on a big screen. And there's no mm-hmm. – like this is one of those movies where to me it's like watching this mo- – judging this movie from seeing it on a regular TV or even a big screen TV is almost like judging a Disney ride by a YouTube video or something. Yeah, it's I can like see that. It's like you're not in it. And I've seen it both ways recently. I saw it recently last Thanksgiving with my son on a big screen at the Egyptian theater. Wow. Which is one of the reasons I was so excited that you contacted me for this movie because I literally had just had that experience, which was profound for me. Really? I have to say. Because, well, I'll get into that in a minute, but, but then we saw it again just literally two days ago. I re- wanted to rewatch it for this because I'm that anal about preparing and your, and your son rewatched it. He rewatched it with me. And wow. you, th- you think he's maybe the only nine year old to have seen 2001 twice? I think so in this generation. <laughs> wow. Who's even, who brings their nine year old? I almost didn't bring him because I thought he's going to be bored to tears. Yeah. And so this is the other, again, sort of before we talk about the movie, I thought like some movies, did, did you guys ever do for any of them? Do you do any kind of, Preparation, like I just want you to know, with this movie, hmm. you need to like. Do you do any preparing? <laughs> Not <laughs> to, really. Talking Carla down into it, or is that yeah. a cheat? Because you're like, well, that I think it's a cheat. I want to get want to get the raw. I want to get a, a raw organic reaction to the movie. But I see, I see why that would be helpful, and that makes. And actually, I was thinking about this this morning because I did have time to kind of watch the rest of it this morning. <laughs> but then I thought, 
I'm going to let Evan convince me of why I should go back and watch the rest of this movie. And that, that helps, actually, that I should see it on the big screen. Someday, when it's playing on the big screen, we'll, we'll give it another shot. Yeah. It, it does come around here probably once a year. The Egyptian yes. usually gets it. They'll do some, like, CinemaScope celebration or something. I think I saw it on VHS the first few times I saw it. Because wow. I first saw it in high school. Uh, but then I saw it on the big screen in Chicago at the Music Box Theater, which uh, they have current uh, runs, but then they also will. It's also kind of a revival house, and they will. Sh- I saw a lot of Hitchcock's on the big screen there for the first time, uh, and it was. It you're right is that it's a, a polar opposite experience of just like sitting in the movie theater, and like and I think I literally got a seat up front and just leaned back and just let it wash over me. And that's the way it works. It doesn't work like a regular movie, and so that's what like. We've been having an issue in our family because we have a family Craigslist type experience all the time <laughs> where in, instead of, you know, you two, it's the parents, mostly me. Chris, yeah. Chris does not force <laughs> film opinions. Um, and by the way, she's in the same camp with you. Of, like, I was like, hey, do you want to go with us? No. <laughs> no. Zoe, do you want? No. <laughs> no interest. Um so, uh, yeah, bo- both the ladies in my family had no interest. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, quick tangent on that, because another one of your podcasts, you did bring up the Bechtel test. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it dawned on me that, is there a Stanley Kubrick movie that passes that? I don't I think so. I seriously doubt that there is. I don't think yes. The only women in this movie, I think almost no words come out of a female mouth. Yeah. And so what do you have to identify with? There's the daughter. Really, the daughter. The daughter. In their video. There, there's a video from Haywood Floyd's daughter and there's... Um, She's really cute. I actually did like that scene. <laughs> I believe that is Kubrick's daughter. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, that's and then you one, see Frank's parents. He has a mom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's about it. There's a... a flight attendant on the spacecraft there's a couple of russian lady scientists yeah perhaps. there's sort of the secretary type concierge the when they delegation. first arrive at the yes. thing yes. but there's really only four characters in this movie who are important at all yeah. one of whom is a computer right right <laughs> um so but i i knew okay so oh yeah so with with our family it's like you go through these movies and like the kids are constantly either disappointed or even horrified <laughs> uh um we had a First one was uh, we went to the the episode seven of Star Wars and they had seen the other uh, the other ones most of them I think um, before that and I had this moment on that movie you know that's made for me right mm. I'm the this Force Awakens the Force Awakens yeah. I'm all like I'm oh my God they finally are getting it right this is so great <laughs> and I look over and my two kids are looking like the audience members and the producers watching the <laughs> Springtime oh, yeah. for Hitler because like, it is I'm like oh yeah this is kind of a lot more brutal than it than things used to be and then um, surprisingly awful experience watching uh, It's a Wonderful Life oh no that's uh, too bad there's a whole story with that um, <laughs> but uh, so I hadn't been I didn't ha- actually that that yeah that was right before this or after this no that, that was after I took him to 2001 so that was the sobering up it was like <laughs> my good dad was okay I talked to Dash I said are you interested in seeing this and he said yeah I think so but a lot of times he'll say that because he wants to bond with me he Aww. really wants to have daddy son time yeah so he'll say yes even if he doesn't mean it Big problem we had with that was like the Haunted Mansion. He knew I loved the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. <laughs> and he finally had to tell my wife, I, I don't like it. It's too scary. But I don't want to say no because I want dad. I know it's his favorite ride. I'm like, I you know, I, had yeah. to, I can go on any ride with you. You don't get it. I'll Aww. go on whatever. Anyway, so I prepped him for this. And I felt really good about preparing him just the right way because I felt like 
I saw it exactly at his age, the very wow. first time, on a big screen at a re-release. Uh, they did a re-release in the <clears throat> the year that I was his age. <laughs> and uh, my parents took me. I was so excited. I'm like, space, awesome. In my head, it hadn't come out yet, but in my head was something like Star Wars. I thought right. that's what I was getting in for. And I was just like, geez, what is this? <laughs> but one of the things that really leapt out at me was the uh, that phone scene with the little girl. Mm-hmm. But um, – Jump back to that later, but I, I prepared, so I knew, oh God, this was so boring for, for me. But then I didn't really know what was happening. Mm-hmm. And then when I came back as a teenager and saw it, I was blown away and loved it. So I thought, I think the key is to go the opposite of spoiler alert and tell him. I said, Dash, I think if you're gonna, it's, I go, you gotta be warned. It's not a regular movie. It doesn't have a regular story. So you might get bored. And he's like, well, and I go, but I think if I t- explain to you what's happening and tell you the story ahead of time so you know what's going on, you won't get as bored. And if you know, look, it's supposed to be this slow. It's all cool. So I did that. And I, you know, we'd be driving in the car, taking him to his ballet class. And I'd be like, okay, so, you know, they, there's a, you're going to see a early man and then this weird rectangle <laughs> thing is going to appear and you're going to not know what it is. It's okay if you don't know what it is. And then I explained the other. The four, eight men don't know what it is. They don't know what it is. <laughs> You get to the moon. This thing has been – and what you need to know about the moon is they find one of those things buried on the moon and then when they dig it up, it sends out this signal to Jupiter. And so then they send a message to Jupiter – I mean not a message, a a mission to Jupiter. And I explained – basically I explained all this stuff. I go, there's a boardroom scene. You might get really bored because you don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) It's because they're trying to keep it secret because they don't want people to freak out. So I basically explained it to him all. He's like, okay. So we – when we go to the movie, I'm still unsure, and we get to the intermission, and we're walking to the bathroom, and he, he tugs on my arm. He's, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Oh, that's awesome. That's so and I was like, great. I did it. Good dad <laughs> moment. He really loved it. Oh, I love that. And, and he did actually get it on way deeper levels than I would think a little kid would, you know? That's so cool. And uh, I, I was really happy with Can that. Can you just start to do that for me with all these movies, Craig? <laughs> just talk to me like I'm nine and tell me the plot ahead of time. And then I'll be, understand. Because I said several times in the 50 minutes that I watched, I don't know what's happening. I think most of the quotes will reflect that. that, that is- <laughs> <laughs> and then some of them, like, I knew, I knew you were going to say during the dawn of man, like, I thought this was about space. (laughs) It does help, I think, to prep with – because that to me is like part of the brilliance of the movie. It's just like 2001 A Space Odyssey. What the hell am I looking at these yeah. ape men for for, <laughs> for twenty for time. twenty minutes? You know that yes, absolutely. And when I was a kid, I remember having that thought. But at the same time, that's probably from a kid point of view the least boring part too, because you're like, whoa, yeah, cavemen, yeah, yeah. yeah. fighting. All right. <laughs> um, well, so, I I honestly don't remember if I had read the book first or but i think i must have read the book first before i saw the movie because i don't remember being that confused by the movie uh now the book the movie is not uh an adaptation of the book the book was written concurrently by arthur c clark along with he and kubrick developed the movie together uh and while clark was writing the book kubrick was writing the screenplay and they were kind of influenced by each other's choices uh but clark chose to be much more uh, because it's a novel, much more explicatory about everything that happens. Uh, and so you understand the purpose of the monolith. You understand, uh, what, uh, what Dave Bowman is going through in the last half hour of the movie. You understand the star child a little more. The book, uh, they go to Saturn actually rather than Jupiter. Uh, 
Oh, right. And why would you? Why does it matter? Why? Why would he change that? I think Kubrick uh, and <coughs> Douglas Trumbull, who was the special effects supervisor on it, uh, decided that they were having a hard time depicting the rings of Saturn and thought that they could depict Jupiter oh, better. So it was it was literally just like whatever they could image better, uh, and so that they changed it for that reason. So I think I understood what. And then the there's a lead ape. Uh, I believe it's called Moon Watcher. That's right. You know? yeah. So if, like you actually, the first part of the book is told from her, his perspective and everything. So it, it's much more of a traditional narrative. And Kubrick intentionally took out anything that was going to shed any light on what was happening. And he wanted it to be uh, as much of a total sensory experience of just images and music. And there is no dialogue in the first 20 minutes. There's no dialogue in the last 25 minutes. And there's very little... In between, and most of it is done in the very uh, boring Kubrick way of just like the the bare bones of what people are are saying. There's not a lot of emotion attached to it. They're they're very kind of staid performances. Uh, I happen to think Kier Delay, who's the the lead character, gives a really good performance in it because he feels very authentic and real. Yeah, I think he's great in it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and it is. It's true. Like the the first dialogue you hear is just a little chit chat. It's like. Welcome. It's good to see you. Check in over here. Number seven's open. <laughs> Whatever. When they go to the little thing to right. check in. I think all that stuff with Haywood Floyd is just to show at this point that space travel is mundane because it really feels like some middle-aged guy going to a business conference somewhere. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's taking a boring flight, running into some work colleagues, has a boring board meeting. It just happens to be about extraterrestrial life right, being right. revealed on the moon. <laughs> you know? But I think he intentionally is not trying to make it seem remarkable to right. these people is trying to make it seem mundane which is an interesting choice yeah it's just become normal this is you know like like regular flight it looks like a, it looks a lot like an airplane when you're yeah. in there and everything and uh, there, it is pan, it does have the pan am, pan am logo on it and then on the space station there's a howard johnson's as yes. well but i mean that stuff is kind of underplayed and your eye has to catch it i think he doesn't make a meal out of it no but again on big screen you definitely notice all those little details mm. um and it definitely especially at the time made it just so much more realistic and the idea of yeah pan am would be like that by then and, <laughs> uh and boy, we came really close in 2001. Yeah. Getting, <laughs> they were so, so optimistic well, that that's where technology would have advanced to. Yes. But technically, I mean, the other thing though is, I mean, so this movie came out in 68. We landed on the moon in 69. First space station was 71. So they say we landed on the moon right. in 68. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. <laughs> well, of course, and Kubrick is one. Mr. Kubrick. Um, there's a great YouTube video of a guy debunking the whole thing based on the technology they had for television. Uh-huh. Oh. If you haven't seen that, it's really great. He's like, Look Kubrick couldn't have done it because all the effects he did in 2001 were film-based effects that you could not have done on Video. Oh, so there's somebody debunking the conspiracy theories. Yes. 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 Oh, cool. Very cool. effectively. Yeah. I'll try to look for it's that really and, and tweet it. Uh, um, sorry. Go ahead. Anyway. Uh, so, uh, I think I was done with that thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, yeah. And then, so 71 was the first space station. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, which leads me to the first big profound moment I had watching with my son, that phone call. Because mm-hmm. when I was bored as a kid, one of the few things I really remembered, of course, I remembered how and all that dialogue, but because um, that, you know, that stuff is just so iconic, even as a kid. That's when I woke up. I'm like, what, yeah. what's going on? Ooh, what? <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. This is kind of funny. What's going on? 
But that phone call, I was like, wow, that would be so weird. That would be wild if you could see each other when you're talking to each other on a <sighs> phone. It blew my mind at nine years old. And I'm sitting here now in my own lifetime yeah. with a kid who goes, yeah, it's called, it's called face, what is it? FaceTime, dad. <laughs> <laughs> like we have that. Yeah. Video chatting is just a thing that we do every day. We're so, yeah. I mean, that, that is crazy that we can do that. So, you know? yeah. It's so that, like the evolution within, you know, the technological revolutions that have happened since that movie are pretty insane. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and so it was weird watching it. Also seeing like, oh, my kid must be smarter than me because he's not bored during this <laughs> as I was. <laughs> I guess it, it's reasonable to assume at the rate the space program was advancing in the 60s, right. you know, because they were a- about to get to the moon. You know, that was the goal that, you know, Kennedy had stated at the beginning of the decade. And I, I guess all the develop, if had we kept going exponentially of what we did in the 60s all the way to 2001, we might have had, you know, I, yeah, gotten there. Yeah, that was a, I think I had a quote about that, maybe, talking about <laughs> how we kind of just got stunted after that, and it hasn't really advanced, or from our point of view, at least. I'm sure there are other things happening that we're not aware of, like, you know, uh, spaceships <laughs> <laughs> being hidden underground by the government. <laughs> I do want to talk to you more specifically about the, the music, because um, the... This does not have an original score no. to it, but this has some of the most famous combination of images and music in film history. There, yeah. Was there a score? I feel like I heard a lot of music. Is that true? Well, what, he was lifting existing classical pieces that he was oh. using as temp tracks uh, while editing. Right. And he liked the temp tracks that he left in. Uh, Let so, Evan tell me. Okay. Well, as it turns out, there's two kind of music scandals with this movie. Oh. Uh, Music scandal number one. Music scandal number one. There was an original score composed, not fully. It was started. Like 40 to 50 minutes worth of music were written by Alex North, who did his previous – was Spartacus right before He did Spartacus. uh, That was 1960, but he had work with Kubrick. Oh, Barry Lyndon might have been before this. Barry Lyndon was after this. Uh, But yeah, he had worked worked with Kubrick and he had done the streetcar film score, that famous jazz-inflected score. He's one of the great Hollywood composers. He's great. Uh, But he did – do music for this and I've seen what he, I've heard what he did and it's when you hear it as music it's great music but when you see it paired with the images you're like oh boy really this does not work <laughs> why doesn't it work it is score okay so it comes as a matter of perspective he's scoring it from a perspective really it seems to me of like story so like when you hear what he does like with the open it's all very kind of triumphant mm-hmm. whereas the the Richard Strauss piece that got used it's not really triumph. It's got more like awe mm-hmm. in it. The, the, the Zarathustra piece, the famous opening music. Bum, 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 mm-hmm. That yeah. is more like, wow, world's opening up. And, um, that is from a piece of music that is a tone poem based on the work of Nietzsche. And it actually is. And some people think that Kubrick thought about this, but I don't, there's a, there's a, debate about whether he thought of this ahead of time but the the Nietzsche piece that that music is for uh is about the uh ubermensch or the, the basically a, a next evolved man evolving into the yeah, ubermensch into yes the, and god is dead and all that stuff and <laughs> and the new ethics and morals come from a highly evolved mankind next level kind of thing kind of like a space baby alludes <laughs> to be but um so 
but the stuff that Alex North wrote is more like, I don't know, it just seems more like Hollywood score. And when you see it paired up with the, like the, the thing where he discovers the bone with the, the uh, moon, moon watcher, is it? Was it? Yeah. Moon watcher discovers the, it's just like, dun, 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 dun. and my, I heard that some of that stuff got repurposed for the movie Dragon Slayer, which you're like, yeah, it'll work great for that. <laughs> Heroes and triumph, but it's not triumph that he's hitting with the music there. It's literally evolution. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole different, and the whole movie is such a poem, and the mute, the score was trying to be really intellectual, but in a, in, in a character driven way. The stuff that, the very stuff that makes his streetcar for desire score so great, the inner workings of each person. Kubrick is not looking for the inner workings of each person. His movies, I've always thought, are like a doctor looking at our species through a microscope going, look at these crazy people yes. and their craziness. It's not you know? accidental that the, the robot Hal is the, the character with the most interesting interior life and the yes. most emotion yes. in the movie. You know, And, and Kubrick is frequently... Uh, either celebrated or derided according to who you talk to as being, you know, cold and emotionless. Right. Yeah. Uh, very much. So. Yeah. And so, uh, so the score really wasn't working. And, and, but the other, the other scandal about that whole scenario was to me is how Kubrick handled all that. Because I think there was, I don't know, you know, He's a very, uh, you know, he didn't do a lot of interviews. We don't know him very well. He's not like a Martin Scorsese. You're like, you've heard him talk about everything and you yeah. kind of get a vibe for his personality. What I've gotten from interviews with, um, one, I saw an interview with Gerald Freed, who was his main composer all the early years up through Paz of Glory. They came up together in New York. They're like buddies. And, you know, I picture a situation like, well, if you're like that, it's like me and Paul, right? You know, we're like, we work together. And then he does, you know, Paz of Glory, big hit. And then he goes off to Hollywood, does Spartacus. Wait, phone never rings. Nothing. Just gone. Relationship over. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> nothing like mean or anything. Just like, I'm over here now. See ya. Cold and clinical. Yeah. And so the story was that Alex North went to the screening of the movie, and that's how he found out that his music wasn't in it. <gasps> no. And then I read somewhere that there's a little more to the story than that. And so I wanted to make sure. So I did look it up for this and research the button. So sure enough, that is where he really knew that it wasn't. But he had the the more to the story is only that he kind of had some writing on the walls. But here's here's the other part that just makes it kind of like I think that Kubrick must have had as much as he's a director of like, you're going to do it again 75 times. I think on some personal level, he doesn't like the conflict or something because he would show up to the recording sessions. They went, he, he apparently flew Alex North out to England, treated him like a king. Here's your pad. You have everything you need, a record. Here's food. You've got, you know, all the while knowing he was not going to use that in music. the back of his mind going, I really want to, I'm still looking to get the rights to the, to scandal number two, the, the, right. uh, the giddy music, leaky music. <laughs> This movie, by the way, pronunciation, uh, minefield <laughs> for me. It's, you know, Kier Dulea, right? The composer for all the weird, uh, atmospheric music is, I looked it up. I think I've always been pronouncing it Georgi Ligeti, which I think is totally wrong. I think it's George, like George, but with George, George Ligeti. George Ligeti. George Ligeti. <laughs> so. I like the way you work, it, George Ligeti. <laughs> so he had that stuff in there in the temp also, and that, of course, works amazingly. And so he's like – I think the whole time he's secretly trying to get the rights to that. Mm. But um, but he never did, right? Well, that's – yeah. That's scandal number two is he never did. <laughs> and so 
Ligeti, Ligeti has to find out from a friend going, hey, I just saw this movie and your music's all in it. Um, so meanwhile, he's, so he goes to the recording set. This is great. This music is, he's actually saying, saying wonderful, effusive things about how good the music is. Oh, the whole while going, I'm not going to use this. It's totally not working. And, um, wow. So yeah, it's a little messed up. And <laughs> maybe um, from his point of view, though, he's like, well, I put him up in a nice hotel. Yeah. And I gave him a lot of delicious nice. food. I said how great he was. Right. <laughs> he's psychic I going, I've been help, nicer to him. I helped him score Dragon Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> gave him his best themes for Dragon Slayer. If that's what it Dragon is. Dragon Slayer is like a swords and sorcery movie from the early 80s, right? Yes. With Peter McNichol, maybe? Yeah. Yes, Peter I think Mick so. Michael. Or is it the guy from Greatest American Hero? I, I, I'm picturing oh, it's either of those blonde guys. William, is it William Cat or Peter McNichol? It's, I don't think it's Peter McNichol. Okay. I could be wrong. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. And so that was the whole thing. Alex North is wow. thrown out. Doesn't Poor even tell guy. him. Meantime, Ligeti's music is in. He puts it in at the last minute because I can't, you know, I can't do this other music. It just puts it in. That's it. It's in. He had talked to the publisher. So I get, you know, to Stanley Kubrick's credit, it wasn't like he was fully, he was trying to do it right. Wasn't trying to steal it. But, you know, uh, you have Eastern Bloc stuff and it's hard to get, find the guy. Sure. So, and they also had a rule about like if, uh, only a little bit of music is used and you get the okay of the publisher, you don't have to actually find the composer. Hmm. So they kind of tried to stretch that a little. Mm. And then so Ligeti apparently went to see it and he saw it a second time with a stopwatch. So he could be like, okay, you just use a little, huh? Let's see here. Overture? Okay. You know, intermission music. Because one of the pieces plays out in its entirety, right? I, or close to it. Yeah. Um, the, the atmospheres is what you hear in the overture, not all of it. Um, and, and in the coming back from the intermission music. And, uh, the Requiem all through that crazy stuff at the end. And every time the monolith is there. And there's a piece they didn't even credit at the very, very end when he comes back from all the crazy psychedelic stuff and he's seeing himself over and over again at the end. Yeah. There's this weird chirpy stuff and it's another one of his pieces put through a bunch of reverb. Mm. Um, so Ligeti was a avant-garde, like modernist composer. Like he was, he was still a young guy at the time. This music was not that old. No, right? it was current at the it was time. Current. And yeah. this is wow. all like, this is all like the, that atonal kind of chanting dissonant stuff. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's very off-putting. It's, and it's, and what the Requiem, I gotta say, is beautiful. It's, and again, you've heard a lot of it in the movie, but it's, see, it, it's unnerving and yet it's, it really is like, yeah. this puts you into another spiritual place or another metaphysical place. It's just amazing. And for me, this, that's part of the thing for this, for me, this movie, when I was a teenager, especially, I bought the soundtrack album and I was like, it blew my mind that this wasn't written for a movie that, that like, you mean someone just wrote that and performed it in a concert hall? How do you even do that? How do you even, if you're the singer, right? And you got, here's the chart. I mean, how do you even like know which thing yeah. you're doing? How do you hear your note when the other person's like a half tone away from you? I mean, I, I just, what? The whole thing was mind blowing to me. And, and it introduced me to so much music because that would lead you to the next thing and the next thing. And I thought the use of it all was beautiful. And, and again, so Alex North's approach, for example, again, it's very story oriented. And so when they, when you get to like the waltz, for example, it's just so blatantly like we have skipped millions of years and this waltz is part of what humanity does now. We put our brains can listen to this harmony, listen to this hmm. beauty that we've put in the world and look at these <clears throat> ships in their ballet and all that. And it's so, it's so poetic to yeah. see all that. Yeah. 
Um, That's a really so I love that aspect of it, and the use of all pre-existing music helps with that part of it. This is all humanity. This is the mm. voice of humanity from different eras, completely different eras, different backgrounds. That's a really cool way of looking at that jump cut from the bone to the uh, to the spaceship, which is one of the most famous match cuts in movie history. But of like uh, specifically the music of, that's Johann Strauss, right? Yes, you know, just showing the the beauty and the evolution of man. Well, let's, let's hear what Carla had to say, uh, with a segment that we like to call Carla's Quotes. She's feeling her oats and Greg's taking notes. Whatever they are, it's Carla's Quotes. Uh, yeah, I think our first Carla's quote is specifically about the legity music underneath the overture because there's just a black screen. You hear this, uh, this choral, this dissonant choral stuff. And Carla said, well, already the music is upsetting me. <laughs> it was. I, and I was just thinking, having forgotten that I said that or felt that when I did fall asleep, I woke up to the music and I was upset right away. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was, I think I even was like, please turn this off. Please turn this off. Cause I felt so, uh, you know, uh, what's, I don't want to say lonely. I guess maybe it is loneliness or, um, just like removed from humanity. Yeah. <laughs> like everything's darkness. <laughs> it is. And I'm a little it's spot like in the darkness. Stuff. Yeah. But that's just from the music, right. not even necessarily the imagery. Did you see uh, Under the Skin? I did not. Oh god. Uh, that the music in this uh, the the score for that I think is brilliant and it's the same she's a young British woman who I think started out as like a techno composer and she wrote a score for Under the Skin. She wrote the score for Jackie too with Oh, uh, oh with, I did see that. Uh and uh I think she got a nomination for for that one, but her score for Under the Skin uh has to be partly influenced by like some of the Liggety music in uh in 2001 because it's very the images alone in that movie are unsettling but when you combine it with the music it's really unforgettable and that was skin is the worst not the worst movie the scariest most upsetting unsettling movie i've ever seen i've gone to see a lot of movies with you i've seen a lot of movies with you at the theater and at home and i don't remember you ever having that visceral and unpleasant experience to, oh, to wow. a movie yeah that's the one with scarlett johansson is a alien uh oh. living on earth and luring men into oh, a van to right. to kill them <laughs> so upsetting the yeah. whole, from start to finish it's horrifying wow <laughs> yeah i think i left the theater for a minute and you thought that and i wasn't came, gonna go back in and came back yeah Ugh. That sounds like one of many movies that I, that there's so many movies now that I go, gosh, when I was a teenager, I would have been all over this, but I just can't. I like, mm-hmm. I used to be such a gore. I used to subscribe to Fangoria magazine mm-hmm. awesome. and see, you know, all the Friday the 13th, all that stuff. And there was a certain point, and there's actually one movie that kind of was a big turning point for me, which was a Pasolini movie, Salo. Which literally I've heard never watched yeah, <laughs> because there are images that will uh, never leave your mind. Well, yes. it's the most important movie I cannot recommend to you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like you don't want to go through this. But at the same time, it resensitized me to violence. 
Mm. But we're not here to talk about that. That's really interesting. And I, <laughs> I think that's how movie. I felt about Under the Skin, too, was that I thought it was really well made and the score was amazing. I thought everything about it was amazing, but it upset me to my core. <laughs> yes. And you would never want to put yourself through that no, And again. I would never recommend it to anybody because yeah. it's too upsetting. I did see it a second time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then I think... Uh, that's not on your top 100, right? Salo. <laughs> Salo is... Just from reputation alone, I feel like I should put it in the top. Ten, just oh, so uh, so Carla can watch it. that. Yeah, I, I've never seen any Pasolini. Uh, I don't. I don't believe. Uh, I think this is still during the overture. God, what is going on in this movie? There's nothing going on. It's just noise. <laughs> There's a blank screen for like ten minutes. <laughs> see, that's much better in the theater, right? <laughs> that's a wonderful I can, experience I can see in that. the theater. Yeah. Got a big bowl of popcorn. You're leaning yeah. back. You're in the yeah, dark. You're like this I mean, is gonna be something. <laughs> and you got to think also. Can you imagine in 1968 when even that uh, Zarathustra theme? No, that was not hugely popular. That was yeah. not in the you know sort of. He was unearthing that. Yeah, yeah as you a hadn't deep heard cut. it. You're like, oh, space movie. Like, <laughs> what is going on? The curtain hasn't even opened yet. Mm-hmm. And then, like you say, you open it up. What? Dawn of Man. <laughs> right. Mind blower. And this is certainly the, something that's come up a lot, you know, uh, on the list of things that are influential, but have been so influential that, uh, it's, it's hard to look at the original. But right. I it mean, it feels like repetition when you're looking at the actual original thing. I'm just like the slow pan down a giant spaceship. I mean, that's the opening shot of Star Wars. You know, the whole idea of space having no sound is alien. You know, in mm-hmm. space, no one can hear you scream. Uh, certainly Christopher Nolan took the whole flying into a black hole thing for interstellar. You know, I mean, it's, it's influenced every single space movie that's come since and i think because he i think it's even influenced our space program because of the of how realistically scientific he tried to make all the technology in the movie it had to have at least an unconscious influence on uh, our space program since then my understanding is he actually pulled people from nasa to help design mm-hmm. like the screens and all that stuff you're seeing was it wasn't just he did he did not go to like your hollywood set guys and go what well, it's going to look cool yeah mm-hmm. it was all very functional even like the stewardess outfits and stuff were yeah. all very you know like those big you know how they have the sort of helmets mm-hmm. that's because it's weightless they put that because like if you were weightless you'd have to have something just in case your your grip shoes wear out or something <laughs> and your head hits the top Oh, like wow. it's all functional. It's all yeah. like very super realistic. That's really interesting. All right, you guys, you're starting to convince me. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. We're going to go right home and finish this movie, right, Carla? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> next time it's at the Egyptian. Yes, exactly. Title appears on the screen, The Dawn of Man. Carla said, when does man dawn? <laughs> uh, and then we see our our main characters, which are a bunch of guys in ape suits. And Carla said, those are real apes, right? <laughs> When, do, <laughs> when does Charlton Heston come out? Oh, wah, wah. <laughs> there, there is one shot of a leopard jumping on one of them, and it looks like the, it's really somebody wrestling with the leopard. Like, it I don't know if that's sure a trick does. shot or not. Like, how did I they get don't... that? Is that a trained cat with his handler inside the ape suit? I I've mean... always wondered that. I've always wondered, like, how it was with these suits and everything. And one, one thing I did see is, so there's a lot more, like, rear projection stuff going on than yes. you think in that opening thing. I figured they all went to a location, which some of it is that. But They're somewhere somebody, in the desert. Yeah. But no, it's, it's all shot in Shepperton Studios, I believe. In, I think so, in, yeah. In, in London, yeah. Really? Amazing practical wow. effects work. Um, that leopard had crazy eyes. 
Did you yeah. see that? Yes. Oh, they yes. were like bright yellow, like ghost eyes. <laughs> Here's Carla's take on caveman times. I'm so glad we were born in this era. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that when they were drinking the water and just like looking at each other like they were really bored. <laughs> like that's, that's their day, right? Yeah. You know, of like. Gotta find some water. Yeah. But once they figure out how to kill those tapirs around them, right. you know, how to bash them in the head. Um, <laughs> I don't know specifically what this was reacting to, but although I think this is when the monolith made its first appearance. Carla said, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's yeah, this gigantic I... black rectangular slab suddenly appears in front of these uh, ape men. And uh, suddenly they they evolve. They learn how to use tools to fight off their opposing tribe. And so to- does that mean that – okay. I like how you explain it to your son where it's like you don't need to know what it means. Just know that it happens or something like yeah, that. So- but – okay. But let's, let's dig into this for a second. <laughs> it, does it like send out signals that inspire the apes to do that? Is that what we're supposed to think? Or is it just that because this new thing is here, they're looking at everything in a new way? I think it can be, it's really kind of an either thing. Cause one thing I noticed, especially the, uh, I, I noticed it a bit in the theater, but I really thought, you know, I made notes this last time. Mm-hmm. One thing I made note of was there's a readiness for evolution kind of thing going on. It's like when you see the apes all cuddled up at night and like there's a group of them, one, one group of them is kind of nudging each other. Yeah, that's mine. Get them. And they're just being kind of apes. And the, but our main guy, is staring off into space like he's deep in thought. Mm. The very next scene is the monolith. Like it's like he's already kind of thinking, so he's already ready to take this next step. Got and it. then there's the monolith. And so yeah, one version of it I think is it's like the I don't know if they're sending a signal to your brain, but I think it's more like when you're ready, you get this. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the whole thing. They bury it on the moon. It's like it'll take them. How long do you think it'll take them to dig that up? Eh, give them a couple million years. All right. <laughs> yeah. When they get there, they'll find. When they find that, we'll let them have the signal. It's like this big elaborate evolutionary telephone game where each sentence is like millions of years in between. Okay, we're gonna say hello to you here. Oh, you got the bone tool? Okay, you'll figure out the rest. When you get to the moon, call us. We'll let you know. We'll tell you where to go next. You know, like scavenger hunt or something. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, he's he's got that look. And then to me, the the, the key moment later for the, ne- the next big step of evolution that's going to happen towards at the end of the movie with, with Kier, with uh, Dave Bowman, the key moment to me there was the conversation they have when they have the interview, you see them watching BBC, and, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but notice that Hal had a sense of pride when he was talking. <laughs> yeah. And do you think he has feelings? And then uh, Dave Bowman says, I think that's a, uh, something that we really can never know or something like that. I jotted it down somewhere here, but what his actual quote was. But it was basically, yeah, I don't think anyone can, tru- can truthfully answer. And you, you juxtapose that with the computer who's evolved but not mm-hmm. as evolved as him. Because it thinks it knows everything. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of Joseph Campbellian, he who know, knows doesn't know, he who knows he doesn't know knows kind of thing, <laughs> right? It's that, it's, so the computer thinks he knows everything. He's not as highly evolved and, and he's, cause the key to evolution is adapting. And what really I love about the movie, uh, the way I see it now, cause, these last two viewings were very different for me. One of them was all about, I'm here with my son and he's getting it and evolution. I'm here with my kid and technology is caught up to us. <laughs> yeah. This last viewing was very different. It was literally within 48 hours of President Trump giving his State of the Union address. So that's kind of in the back of my head. And you're looking at this of 
Which is a key moment in de-evolution. De- <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and yeah, you, you look at the computer is like, I know everything. There's nothing you can teach me. Mm-hmm. What does science know? And here, like, science is the key to moving forward. Adaptability and thinking, pondering is the key to moving forward. And so where the computer, and it's all about survival. And the other, the other kind of comical thread of the whole movie that I love is, you never get past that beating the crap out of the other guy with your bone. And the, what I didn't think about this any previous time I had seen it, but, um, when I first saw it on the screen with dash, I'm like, Oh my God, the scene with the Russians is cracking me up because you've just seen one tribe beat the other tribe for the water. So, but now we are evolved and we are sophisticated. (laughs) And so even though our countries are killing each other, our version of it now is, I'm not at liberty to discuss that. Mm. Well, and it's just really awkward, uncomfortable conversation they have. But beneath it is still, I'm going to club you in the fucking head. Two tribes. Yeah. 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 Am I allowed to swear on here? Absolutely. Go for Um, it. (laughs) So uh, that's really fascinating. And then Hal Mm -hmm. wants to survive. So he's got to club those guys over the head (laughs) in his way. And then Dave Bowman is the one who's about to evolve to the next step. He still has to kind of club Hal, but he doesn't kill him per yeah. se but he still has to outsmart but he adapts and does the stuff that Hal doesn't think about that he could possibly do so it's really that whole part of it I found really interesting mm-hmm. and scary but also inspiring scary in that we live in a time that's anti-science and we need science to be able to move forward and solve our problems but inspiring that Dave Bowman became such a hero to me of no we can outsmart him mm-hmm. you can still evolve you can still that's how it is done. Hmm. Of course, there were, how much more dangerous was it for the primates that were living? They had to fight that, that, that tiger or lion jumping on them or whatever. <laughs> so it's just you outsmart and you grow and, and all that. That was really powerful to me this time. I'm going to throw out, the, out that uh, Eben is more highly evolved than us. I agree. <laughs> I could listen to Eben for hours. You're, I'm you're, you're a smart guy, man. I'm totally that is, convinced that I need to go see this movie now. <laughs> <laughs> and and now you know the kind of the the evolution that we're all anticipating is the singularity, right? When uh, when artificial intelligence is smarter than us, you right. know, like when is when is that going to happen? You know, so that that's kind of a, a common source of fear right now right. on Earth of mm-hmm. like a realistic thing that's probably not too far away. And because will it be, or will it be like how? Yeah, you know, we're the Where ones programming. Can... So if it's flawed, it's on us. Yeah. Hmm. Uh. Here's Carla's quote. We're still, uh, still on the ape men. I thought this was about space. Mm-hmm. And then the famous match cut, uh, to the, uh, from the bone to the spaceship. And Carla said, finally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I read the, uh, Ebert's, uh, great movies review of this. And his argument for the monolith is the apes see it and they see how finely smooth it is. And they're like, that had to be, uh, Hewed by tool, you know, of like oh, some somebody right. had to make that. Oh, you know? another interesting. That, that's an thought. interesting take. On. I honestly like your interpretation of it's not even. It's just simple enough that you're like it just made you think differently. Yeah, mm-hmm. just seeing it, it's like I've never seen an object like this, and it just makes you think differently. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Just getting a new perspective is what you need for growth. And Accessing that, a different part yeah. of your brain and the. That's uh, how it feels living in Portland. <laughs> 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 I'm being dead serious. Like just being there, I. 
feel like I've shifted just as a person in a good way, like become more yeah. of something. <laughs> I've noticed you're carrying that bone around with you all the time. To, <laughs> I to, promise to I won't hit up. you with it. Yeah. <laughs> Not you, everybody else. <laughs> uh, Dr. Floyd has a, uh, a phone call to his daughter, right? And then when the screen goes, I think it, it believe, I believe it says it's a dollar seventy. Oh yes. God. <laughs> and Carla said a dollar seventy. That can't be right. Not, <laughs> not in the future unless money doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so he does have that scene with the russians where he just keeps saying i'm not at liberty to discuss this yeah you know? and they, they're weirdly friendly they, like they know each other first name basis you so have friendly. a place to stay if you come to the states it's like <laughs> that was so awkward i like uh when they're on the uh the shuttle on the moon going to the uh the crater to view the the monolith and they're taking these fake uh processed sandwiches of yes. like uh, what do you want? Uh, chicken? Well, it's pretty close to chicken. Yeah, they're, they're getting better at chicken. What do you got? You got a ham there? Yeah. <laughs> that is a through line thing throughout the movie that I also love is food in the mm-hmm. movie. I didn't notice that. You start with the, you know, here's a bunch of guts and I'm shoving them in my mouth and it's the dead animal carcass. Yeah. And then, you know, we get to it. It's like unrecognizable little <laughs> like box puddings, thing. little, little yeah. goops. Um, yeah. Real quick with the Russian thing. I mean, at that time, too, it was a different thing, meaning like he might have been saying something with that because of our relationship with Russia at the time, right? Oh, sure. I mean, we were racing them to the moon, yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah, and I really felt... <laughs> I don't know what it means. But <laughs> I really felt that it was that kind of like he was saying, we're, we have not advanced beyond the tribalism. Mm-hmm. We have not advanced enough. To me, there's like a... I don't know if he intended it, but I've always had a concern of evolution technically versus evolution i don't want to say spiritually but like wisdom mentally and and technical evolution without the mental counterpart is incredibly dangerous you can you can evolve to the point where you have a bomb right but if you're not evolving in other ways you end up with a trump with a bomb right to understanding the effects of the bomb as opposed to a carl sagan with the bomb (laughs) i'd rather have carl sagan have it and put it in the box that it needs to be in you know Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of i think this movie is alluding to that and and in fact the whole big plot if you can call it that the plot that i didn't even get when i was a kid i don't even know that i really understood it when i was a teenager but this time it was more clear about the whole like we have to hide this from the world because they won't get it and there was a little subtle thing when he checks into the space station and it hasn't put his name in they they mentioned your christian name so like way in the future there's still that's still a thing uh, sure so interesting then yeah. it's like we're founding we're finding evidence of alien life we can't tell anybody because it will be culture shock they literally say culture shock i think and so there's that whole aspect of like so the population is not ready for for that or at least this guy thinks yeah. it's not so that's a whole thing too it's interesting though when we cut to the Jupiter mission. I mean, there's about an hour of the film where we were following the exploits of these astronauts and their and their wacky computer pal. <laughs> um, but until he kills Hal, uh, we don't understand the purpose of the mission. Then finally, it loops back to Haywood Floyd explaining the the purpose of the monolith and everything. Right. But Kubrick. Uh, decided to withhold all that connection from us the whole time just in the same way that that dave and frank are in the dark and so we we don't we don't know about it either i just realized i love doctor who and that's about space (laughs) but i think it's because it's not realistic it's unrealistic i think realistic space movies scare me there you Mm -hmm. go 
Gravity, I think you didn't care for that much either, I right? Didn't, no. Yeah, I loved that movie. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, that was a very visceral experience, but mm-hmm. that, that was another one very influenced by 2001 of all the, the spacewalks and stuff like that. Isn't that kind of consciously scary? I haven't seen that one, but isn't that like, there's, oh, yeah, no yeah. wonder you're, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's no, you're not right. exactly a, <laughs> yeah. Uh, George Clooney floats away into space and dies. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> I can't spoil anything. But so many j- just great iconic images in this, uh, of just, uh, a Dave running down the centrifuge. Uh, of the, the spaceship. I mean, it's so cool of just that, that, which I guess was done with, uh, you, he runs in place and the, the camera is mounted to build a huge rotating set, rotating set. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> and so that moment, um, it's actually, I think it's Frank who's running. Yes. And cause I noticed this last time when I watched it, that, um, the first time you see Dave Bowman, you see him in the reflection of Hal's eye. And he's kind of going, he's, it's going around, the eye is stationary, it's, he's going around and around, he's got his hands kind of up as he's climbing through, and in the reflection, he looks like one of the apes. I was like, that is, uh, I know I'm reading it at this point. That's cool. I wasn't high, I was with my kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh. <laughs> Another thing that I think it's true about, uh, just that. Also, the, I'm sorry. Also, yeah. the lady goes upside down too, right? On the oh, with the stewardess when she yeah. walks through, that is so cool. When, and really then walks cool. upside yeah. down. So you were saying the, that was all a rotating rota- set. It's def- okay. Even with that, you're still like, even I still don't get how you did that. Yeah, how did you yeah. do that? I was thinking that. I was. I was like, what? How did? They it's the do same that? principle as Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. That the same way they did that. Um, I forget what it's called, but that old principle of editing where, you know, adjacent shots, you could show the same shot of a, of a, a man making the same face. And according to what you cut to, you'll have different opinions of, right. uh, of what his emotion is. So it's amazing how many times they cut to that, just that singular shot of that red camera eye, which is Hal. And then, you know, it progressively becomes more menacing. There's no music to underscore that to tell you how to feel about that. But that shot of them going into the pod to try to talk privately without Hal hearing them and then eventually cutting to rapid fire cuts back and forth of their or a pan of their lips moving and then back to that single shot of that camera eye. It's just one of the great villain moments in all of film history but it's just a fucking red button you yeah, know it's amazing but you you yeah. project all this menace coming from the this thing did i misread the wikipedia he doesn't actually turn out to be a villain though right he actually knows what they're supposed to do or no yeah well he you're in, also totally allowed to say carla you should have watched the movie i think that's the subtext of this whole episode <laughs> but uh well it's not like it's explained in the movie so it, oh, it's to, not to, okay. in your defense none of this is <laughs> Is yeah. explained. Yeah. Really. Hal's, uh, mission, uh, Hal is programmed to do this mission and everything, uh, anything that is at odds with him completing the mission, anything that gets in his way, i.e. all these astronauts that are meddling with him. So he, he kills or attempts to kill the entire flight crew. But um, it's because he's doing something that's supposed to help human he's rights. He's doing what right? he thinks is right. Well, yes. here's the theory I had this time. First with two things. Number one, in the movie 2010, they try to make it like he kind of short-circuited because he they programmed him to lie and he didn't understand that that made mm-hmm. sense. Which I'm kind of but but this last time I saw it, I caught something else that I thought made sense to me. Again, you can read anything into it because he doesn't explain anything. But so he's doing the psychological profile. He starts asking about so what do you think of the mission? Isn't it weird that those guys train separately? And you know, and so he's asking about the mission, and um, 
I think what it, what it was was uh, I felt I can't remember what the line was, but I, to me it felt like Hal had like an emotion, and and he and he's because that's when Dave Bum goes so oh you're doing the psychological profile right yeah and that's when the first lie is because he wasn't he was asking him honestly, and he's like. Yes. Yeah. He's that pause. And it's almost like he almost went, yeah, that's the ticket. That's it. And so, and then right after that, he goes, just a minute, just, just a, minute. a minute. And he yeah. senses that the thing malfunctioned. And judging by how things go, I don't think that he planned, okay, here's how I'm going to kill them. I'm going to say it malfunctioned, have him take it, then have him put it back. And I, no, I think he thinks it malfunctioned because he had a feeling and he mm. didn't know how to interpret yeah. the signal. He, he felt weird. Something was awkward in that conversation. He felt an emotion, a human, like, this is weird. Why is he calling me on this? And what's, no, we're not doing, uh, yeah, I'm psychological profile. That's it. And then that feeling, okay, wait, there's an error in something. And it translated as an error. And then he's busted. It's wrong. And he can't, then it's, that's when I, it's like, well, the HAL 9000 down there said you're wrong. <laughs> and he's like, that's when he's going, ooh. And they mentioned when they're in the pod going, um, if we have to do all this, my big concern is no one's ever shut one of these things down. I don't know how he's going to react. And of course that's, yeah. so I kind of feel like that's mm. the thing as a computer. He didn't understand how to handle the emotional reaction. And when you think of human beings, that's a lot of where violence comes from, from mm-hmm. people too. Mm-hmm. It's like, don't tell me I'm wrong, you know, yes. or don't reject me or whatever. And then mm-hmm. it lashes and then you lash out. So. Evan, I think this movie sounds so interesting from your point of view. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> but I also wonder, maybe I'm too literal of a person. Because sometimes when I watch things like this or listen to music and it's, and I'm supposed to interpret everything, I get exhausted real fast. <laughs> well, I think there's nothing wrong with, okay, so I mean, I've watched this movie many, many times, first mm-hmm. of all. Mm-hmm. And at least three times on a big screen, at least. And that's uh, cool that you're still seeing new things in it. Yeah. yeah. And, but, and, and the, and the way Kubrick intended it, and, I, and here's the tough thing with movies and we get used to viewing things in a way of like the storyline and, right. and all that. And this is a movie that's so blatantly not about that, that there's nothing wrong with doing like what you said you did when you just let it wash over you. You walk out. I don't get it. It's kind of like when I f- saw Buckaroo Banzai. I have no idea what I just saw, but I liked it. I don't get it. But, uh, you know, I didn't know what was going on in that movie, but it was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more arguably moving and interesting and even, you know, than this and a lot of jokes and stuff. But, but as an experience, it is. It's, he intended it like a symphony. And I, I don't, I don't think there should be any sort of guilt or, I, you know, we don't feel right about, I don't get it. It's okay. It's yeah. like just experience it. And then if you see it again, then you start, Seeing things. That's, but that's been my Start experience. Start connecting with it. things. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. um. That's great. I like is, that. This is what you said at the 58 minute mark. How much more do I have to watch? <laughs> You've watched a third. Great. Turn it off. I hate this. <laughs> that's when I woke up and I was very upset. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say it's the most boring, great movie of all time <laughs> or the, uh, or the greatest boring movie of all time. Well, it's, um, I, I know we've been saying boring a lot, and I feel like it's not fair. Boring is unfair, in the but... sense of uh, a movie where nothing, as it's happening, you don't understand the significance of what is happening, so you're not paying attention to what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that's that's why I had to prepare my son that way. Yeah. I felt like if he knew it's okay to not understand, he wouldn't be. Tr- when you try to understand and you don't get it, you start checking out. You're right. Like, okay, this is doing something, and I feel like I'm not getting it, so I guess I'm just wrong, and now I, I might as well leave. Yeah. Because, but if you go, no, no, no. You're supposed to not get it, so you're right where you're supposed to be. Don't worry. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Then you go, okay, then I can just enjoy the scenery. And I told him, if you get really bored, just 
check out all the stuff and go, whoa, isn't that cool? Look how things are going to look in the future. Or would it really be – if you get really bored, just explore the the, sh- the frame. Explore the shot. And um, all that kind of worked. And I, Because I think we do have pressures as people were supposed – it's like when Paul Tompkins asks when um, – have you ever – said that you saw a movie that you really didn't it's like you want to just go yeah i get it oh i saw that yeah yeah (laughs) you have that implicate you that that desire to be you know cool and with everybody to fit in right to understand and and so uh a movie like this kind of tests that it's like well all the smart people seem to like this movie i must be dumb if i don't get it. it's like no nobody gets it i i've (laughs) seen it how many times i still don't understand did the aliens know you know there's so much stuff that still doesn't make sense about it but as a poem Mm-hmm. about evolution and rebirth, which, oh, that's another theme I loved in it, that how many, it's like the little girl, happy birthday. Mm-hmm. Then it's um, Frank Poole getting the message from his parents, happy birthday. And then Hal going, I was first born on, basically he has his birthday and then that's right. have a, the baby at the end. Yeah. Oh, quick, I had to do a quick aside because <laughs> the last time I saw it on a big screen before this one at the Egyptian was many years ago. And so um, there's a part where he goes, uh, when he's shutting down Hal and he's like, uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the Hal 9000 computer. I became operational on January 12th, 1992. That's the last time I saw this movie because the people at the Castro Theater are so damn cool. They scheduled the movie oh, for on, on Hal's, Hal's birthday, the day yes. Hal was and created. And they didn't say anything. They didn't put it on the schedule. So I'm in the audience with everyone and he says that and half the room is like, what? Yeah! <laughs> Big cheer. That's today. That's awesome. really cool. And they're and then they're like, "Oh experience. shit! No, Hal was created today. He's gonna destroy <laughs> yeah, us all." I don't think Terminator had come out yet, but had it. He's like, "This is the beginning of the end." Right? That's so great. Oh, I love that. <sighs> and and so then, what's your interpretation of the uh, the stuff with Dave in the in that room at the end? The, the stuff that I love is him. Seeing himself, so you see two images of him, slightly older, uh, and then much older, but there's always like an overlap, and so it's unclear of like, is he, is he going, living a lifetime in this room, or is this all happening in the matter, uh, in, in the matter of minutes as it unfolds? Uh, in front of us of like, we, we don't know. Is this a zoo where the aliens are watching him? You know, what is this? But then the, then he becomes the star child, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see this giant baby in an amniotic sack outside of Earth. And then as, uh, as, uh, thus big Zarathustra is coming out again, that, that baby slowly pans and looks at us. And it's, it's <laughs> such an amazing, mind blowing ending, but I'll, I'll be damned to explain it. I honestly, yeah, there's so many thoughts I have during that that are much more like what, what Carla would be thinking. You're like, okay, first of all, Back to the food, right? <laughs> Being literal about it, right? So he's eating. Who made that meal? Mm-hmm. And if that is a, a jump cut in time, what is he ordering out? I mean, where does how does yeah. where does the food come from? He didn't have to bonk anyone over the head for it this time. You know where it came <laughs> from on the spaceship. So that, that I'm like, I, I, to be honest with you, I feel like I see these through line. Oh, the birthday rebirth. I get that. You know all this stuff. Um, oh, it's all over and over again, the conquest thing and all that. I get that. Once you get to that part, I'm like, this is really cool. I have no clue <laughs> what – I don't get it at all, but I enjoy it. It's really visually stunning and dreamlike. Yeah. And um, Ken, I don't know. Ken Plume thinks that you would like 2010 
Which really? Which Kubrick had nothing to do with the sequel, though it was based on Arthur Clarke's book. So it is continuing the story and explaining a lot more of what happened in, in 2001. But the cast is Roy Scheider, Helen Mirren, John Lithgow, Bob Balaban oh, are wow. all in it. So I, would, I think it's yeah, all people like that you like people. a lot. Mm-hmm. And it also has a, if I recall, like a happy peace on earth kind of message where the, the Russians and the, and the, uh, Americans make up. Do you think there's something about the idea of, okay, bear with me, um, how everything is cyclical and maybe where we start is where we end and then we just start again? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure. Rebirth. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, I don't know. I always think that. I always think like deja vu, and I probably read this somewhere. Deja vu is really just me having done this 10 billion years ago, and somehow the world just starts over. <laughs> right. Well, Carla, maybe we can talk about that on next week's episode where we're going to talk about my number 100 movie, La Dolce Vita. Wait, we didn't even talk about my theory. <laughs> you totally blasted past my big, deep thought. You didn't even just get my joke, which is we're starting the podcast from the beginning. <laughs> the beginning. <laughs> I don't want to watch that again. (laughs) (laughs) Carla, Carla, your thought is so deep that I can't even get a grip on it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So does that mean that that baby sort of leads back to the the redawn of man? I think so. This is all based on your description. Maybe they'll get it right the second time. (laughs) I didn't see it. So it's all based on your description, you guys. (laughs) This is based on a Wikipedia article and Eben's. No, but like, here's what I love about this. How, here's how I love how we just did this is that I get to hear you guys excitedly talk about it and all the cool things about it before I like just have to sit down and watch it. Cause me having to sit down and watch it is a big part of yeah. my grumpiness sometimes, you know, which is like, Oh, okay. <laughs> we're doing this thing tomorrow. I got to sit down and I got to watch this. <laughs> but, also you're in LA for three days. We're doing three podcasts right. while you're oh, here. God, like yeah. you did not have a lot of time too. but, but just the, it kind of makes me feel like, um, when you would, you know, like in high school, when you would read the book and talk about the book and then watch the movie, <laughs> you right. know? So you had a sense of what was interesting about it before you yeah. plunged into sitting there for two and a half hours. Maybe we've been going about this whole podcast wrong. I'm just saying, this was a great, this was one of the best conversations we've had so far, I think. Yes. And I didn't even watch half the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you want to improvise a scene? Sure. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's got to be something from the first hour, so you have some reference points. So this is the Russians after the conversation with Dr. Floyd. They're on their way back to, let's say they're, they're based in St. Petersburg, um, not Moscow. So they're on, they're on their space flight, uh, back home and then just kind of, uh, uh, going over what, what they learned or didn't learn from that conversation. Do you want uh, do you want some space borscht uh, Anya? Oh, yes, I love the borscht. It's not real borscht, of no, course. No, I know, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> it is space borscht. It's pudding. It's borscht pudding. It's like a goop that tastes like borscht. Oh, these flights with you are so long. Well, we're going all the way back to Earth. I, I mean, know, and uh, it takes two months, and I'm exhausted already. Yes, two where we're, How far are we in? We're about uh, 45 minutes in, so we got about two more months of this. I already know everything about you that I ever wanted to. Hey, that was weird, right? With uh, Dr. Floyd? 
It was. When he said, like, I'm not at liberty to discuss this. And we agreed so easily. Like, it's fine. You don't have to discuss it. Did you feel like he was hiding something? Yeah, I felt like it. But we could sit here all day and try to decipher the meanings. Or he could have just told us. Like, what's going on in the moon base? Like, everybody's sick or something? Like, we need to know that stuff because we're on the moon too. I bet they found a new species. You'll bet they found a new species on the moon. Yeah, right on ya. Well, like, what kind of new species? I don't know, like, cat plus fish. Uh, cat and fish. Uh, once they get together. Catfish. All bets are <laughs> but off. But called yes. fish cat. <laughs> yes, a fish cat. Clearly not a catfish, which is already a thing. <laughs> yes. Dimitri, what is, go- <laughs> what is going on with your asthma over there? I'm sorry that these sandwiches do not agree with me. <laughs> these are terrible sandwiches. Ugh. Dimitri is talking. Oh, thank God. I didn't want to have to listen to this other guy for the next two months. In Soviet space, Russia, sandwich eats you. <laughs> <laughs> and Sinsky. Sinsky. That was a bad Russian accent that I did. And I, I was looking at you when I said that. I, meant, but I, meant I thought myself. you were about to accuse me. Okay. Sorry. Mine was good until I talked. It was great. <laughs> Uh, Eben, I'm going to guess this movie is an A for you. It is definitely. This is like an A plus for me. Yeah. I, I, it's I, one of the few wow. perfectly done movies. It's it's a cinematic experience. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, you have to kind of condition yourself to uh, to be prepared for it. And uh, I, I will agree that it, it really should be seen on, on the big screen more so than most things. Is this... Are you going to give it an incomplete? I'm going to give it an A based on our discussion. <laughs> based on my experience recording this podcast. Uh, with the um, footnote that I only watched 50 yes. minutes of the movie. So you're saying the movie in Eben's mind. Is fascinating. Is the movie in my head. I loved it. Is an A. What does that A stand for? It stands for uh, always have Eben <laughs> on for challenging films. <laughs> uh Eben, where uh, can people find your work online and uh, what uh, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to promote? Um, well, I always try to promote my podcast even though I haven't made an episode in a while. But I try to make them evergreen. There's not that many of them. But I do put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. yeah. So please go listen to it. It's like That's my one sort of place to play. That's like my art there to not sound too pretentious about, but it is. I guess that's pretty. But that's where I get to do here's the music I write for myself and what I do. Because everything else I do is you know hired by other people to – Help yeah. them do what they're trying to do. And that's on ebenschletter.com? Uh, yeah. If you go to ebenschletter.com, you can find there's a little page there for Fantastical Musicorium. It's mm-hmm. on uh, iTunes and any other place that you find podcasts, I think. And you have a lot of your composing uh, that, that can be seen on the television screen now, Stand Against Evil. Stand Against Evil. I guess they got picked up, so we'll see for that's a great. season of that. That'll be later in the year. But I think the other seasons are available probably. And um, there's a show that I've worked on for Amazon that should be coming out at some point. I don't know when. Called Little Big Awesome. It's an animated show for kids. It's really weird. <laughs> cool. And But fun. Um, and uh, Another period. Another period. Sure. Is on as Such a funny this. show. I don't know when this will come out, but that'll probably be still be running as we. Cool. Well, I I think uh, in in terms of marrying guest to movie, 
uh, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back that if you were the right guy for this movie, yeah, definitely. Sure. I hope I didn't blather on too much. No, I always it was worry great. about talking too much. You were fascinating, man. And that was, that was, it was such really great stuff. Yeah. I, I appreciate I, that. I and learned he, a lot. And he didn't talk down to me. Not once, you guys. He <laughs> <laughs> was so kind. <laughs> and then always follow Eben on Twitter if you want to hear his political, uh, Ravings. My rantings. <laughs> his or rantings me, and his ravings. Playing theremin over a video that Jim Bogia adds to with Paul singing. Just happened this week. <laughs> that was very fun. Well, Carla, happenstance uh, dictates that we are going to do... Not watching La Dolce Vita. We're going to do <laughs> another science fiction movie next week. Oh, boy. But this one is a little more earthbound. It actually takes oh, place all on Earth. Okay. Uh, imagine, if you will... Um, so a creature that's that's not from Earth. Uh, I guess they're they're not terrestrial. So what would you call them? Sparks, uh, Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, he's an Earth man who's who's on Mars. Um, oh yeah, so this, he's from Earth. Yeah, so this creature is like extraterrestrial. Um, that's that takes long to, to takes too long to say. So let's abbreviate that. Let's call him ET. <laughs> oh, I've heard of the this guy. extraterrestrial. This is a 1982 film directed by Mr. Steven Spielberg. Knows this is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're gonna watch ET next Great, week. Great, I'm excited. Okay, so uh, I've seen it a lot. But okay. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while for me too. So Probably since I was single digits, maybe. Let's uh let's see if that holds up. So uh, <laughs> since you were a, you really don't think you've seen ET since you were I don't know. I don't younger think so. than 10? Wow. Maybe it's parts of it. Okay. Here and there. Okay. Well, uh so phone home next week and uh <laughs> listen to uh our ET episode. Thanks so much Craig's listeners for tuning in. The list is an absolute good. The list is life. <laughs>